Man, I feel so blessed just to hear the music today. And Jesus, foundation, my fortress, rock of ages. Mm, Good stuff, good stuff. Man, what a blessing and what a blessing to be able to come together and sing and worship this morning. March 1775, 248 years ago, a 39-year-old attorney fired with a passion for patriotism and independence from England, declared, I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. The words of Patrick Henry, 248 years ago this month, a cry for freedom, for independence. As we think about our spiritual life, there is uh, uh, the, this thought of legalism that can come on top of us, that you have to keep the law, that you have to follow all the rules, and it becomes an external display of Outward obedience, and Jesus, the Bible says, has come to set captives free and to provide liberty, freedom. Now, the one who declared freedom and liberty was the one who would be ultimately put to death. But what we find in Scripture is that Jesus desires that we walk in a real relationship with him in which we experience the freedom and the hope of eternal life and forgiveness in him alone. Take your Bibles this morning. And we're in uh, in the book of Luke this morning. And we're picking up in verse number 33. Luke chapter 5 and verse number 33. We're kind of picking up where we have been over the last few weeks as we have been thinking about who's your one. Today, I want us to, to think in terms of that one may need to know some things about our faith. So many people believe that Christianity is a bunch of rules. Do this, do not do this. But Jesus has a message for us in Luke 5, 33 and following. Let's pick up together. Luke 5, 33. It says, then they said to him, John's disciples fast often and say prayers and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, You can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will uh, he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, it will spill, and the skins will be ruined. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine wants new because he says the old is better. With that, let's pray together. Lord, thank you uh, for your word and for the truth in it and speak to us today. And God, may, may we just be reminded 
that Christianity is about a relationship and transformation and experiencing your goodness today. In your name we pray, amen. As we look at Luke chapter 5, and today we're going to slide also into Luke chapter 6, we find that Luke 5 opens with Jesus bringing a miracle of fish that uh, after he tells Peter, after they fished all night, to cast your net on the other side of the boat, then he calls them to come and follow me. Then Jesus heals a man who has leprosy. Jesus then has a man as he is teaching in a room. The tiles of the roof are cleared and a man is lowered before him. And Jesus speaks to this man and says, friend or son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees say, what? Who is this guy that even forgives sins? And Jesus says, look, just so you know that I have the power to forgive sins, I'm going to tell him to rise up, take up your mat and walk. And sure enough, the man begins to walk. Then Jesus, as he's passing along, runs into a man named Matthew or Levi. And he calls him from the tax collector's office and says to follow me. He comes to a personal relationship with Jesus. He's so excited about it, he throws a party and invites all of his tax collector friends and other sinners. And they come. And as they come, the Pharisees again begin to pounce on the disciples and say, Why is Jesus eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? He should know what kind of people these are around him. And then following that, this conversation comes up. The Pharisees say, hey, how come John's disciples fast and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And so Jesus then begins with an illustration of a wedding. He shares two parables and then a proverb as we close out Luke chapter 5. But what we find in Luke 5, as Jesus begins this aspect of ministry around the Sea of Galilee, that his deity is questioned. Who can forgive sins but God? They question his deity. They question his morality and his company. Who is this guy who hangs around tax collectors and sinners? I mean, you know, birds of a feather, they flock together. And and because of that, Jesus must be a sinful person too. And then in this section, they question his piety. Why is it that this guy doesn't fast and call his disciples to fast like the rest of us do? And what Jesus drives home to us is this, that Christianity is about a relationship, not rules. But Jesus is going to drive this home and remind us and call us that he calls us to a personal relationship. He calls us to experience personal transformation and he calls us to experience his personal goodness. He calls us. He calls us first into this personal relationship and then he brings personal transformation and then he shows us his personal goodness. Now notice with me back in Luke chapter 5 in verse number 33. As they begin to question, John's disciples fast and say prayers and the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus says, you can't make the wedding guests fast 
while the groom is with them. So there's some challenges for us today. And the first is this, that you need to prioritize your relationship with Jesus. Prioritize your relationship with Jesus. The Pharisees are all concerned about the externals. How come you're not fasting? How come you're not doing this? Why are you hanging out with these kinds of people? They're looking at everything from an external perspective, not an internal spiritual perspective. And so their, their heartbeat is about the rules. Notice in verse 33, John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and so do the Pharisees, but yours do not. And here's the issue. The religious always focus on rules, and the religious leaders were focused on rules. You have to fast. You have to do this. You have to do that. So as we think about fasting, fasting is putting aside Usually, when we think of it in the scripture, it's putting aside food and putting down the flesh so that we can focus on our spiritual life. But Jesus has already confronted a lot of the uh, Pharisees as he has talked to them about fasting. Back in Matthew chapter 6, he tells them, and when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. There are people that when, when it's time to fast, they, they want to walk around and say, oh, I'm so hungry. And they look gloomy and they, they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. And Jesus says, look, those people have their reward. People get to see that they're fasting. They've, you know, tried to sink their eyes in a little bit more and they've tried to walk a little bit slower and, and act like they're so hungry. And Jesus says, look, they have their reward. But as far as they were concerned, they were following, quote, rules. But Jesus comes back then with an illustration and says that it is not about rules, but it's about a relationship. And he says, why should these disciples fast when the bridegroom is with them? Notice that that interesting part because he tells them, uh, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? Jesus is going to focus on a personal relationship. Jesus is going to focus on relationship. And it's interesting here, he uses the illustration of a wedding. And it just so happened that a week ago Friday, when we were at our hotel in Jerusalem having dinner, that a wedding party came in. And it was, it was wonderful to watch. Now, you have an understanding of Western culture. And you know that in a wedding, everything in our culture is about the bride. You know? picking out the dress and who she goes with and making sure it's exactly the right one. And then the wedding day comes and you know what happens is the pastor and the the groom, they slide in from the side over here virtually unnoticed. But the music pauses and the music changes and the back doors open and everyone stands and we welcome the bride into the ceremony. That's not how it happens then. Matter of fact, the bride is not the most important in, a Jew, in the Jewish culture. Instead, it's the groom. So after this wedding that took place on the Sabbath, on Shabbat, they come in and they've got this little canopy over the bride and the groom. And the bride slides over to the side, presumably, I guess, with her mother and father. 
and groom and the groom and a bunch of men get together and they are singing and they are hugging and they are celebrating and this is a great joyous time, but it's all about the guy. Completely different than our culture. And they sing and they, and they kept going and they were loud and it was, it was a fantastic moment of celebration. Here, Jesus says, I am the bridegroom and I'm here. And now it is a time to celebrate. This is a time of joy and celebration for the disciples because I am with them. In Psalm 1611, it tells us that in his presence is fullness of joy. And while they were walking in the presence of the Lord here on earth, Jesus says, shouldn't they celebrate? I'm with them. God in the flesh, their eyes have been opened. Their hearts have been opened. Shouldn't they celebrate this moment as I'm with them? That's the picture. And then he says, there will be a time when they fast. Back in the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 13 and verse number 7, Zechariah prophesies that strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. What will happen? After their time in the upper room, when Jesus is taken and arrested, what happened? The disciples scatter. There will be a time for them to fast and to seek God and to focus on him and to long for him and to cry out with a spiritual hunger for him. But right now, Jesus is here. It's the time to celebrate. And can I tell us today, if you know the Lord in your life, Emmanuel, God with us, if he has come into your life, it should bring a sense of celebration. It should bring a sense of joy. I was reading and focusing this week on that passage in Matthew 28, verse number 18, where Jesus says, all authority is given me in heaven and in earth. Where we think about the sovereignty of the Lord. Where we think about all things being under Jesus' control and in his hand. And because of that, we can rest in him and we can rejoice in him. There's nothing that's going to come into your life that he doesn't know about. There's nothing that you're going to face that he's not aware of. And he is Emmanuel, God, with us. And he can walk with us no matter what we face in Life. That brings us to a time of celebration. Now, I know there are hard times in life. We walk through valleys in life. Not every moment is a moment of joy. But every moment is a moment we can experience joy in the depth of our heart because we know the Lord is with us. The legalists, the Pharisees, they're just focused on the rules. And Jesus is coming and saying, look, It's not about an outward external obedience. It's about a relationship. I'm the bridegroom. I'm calling and making a family. And we as the church are pictured as the bride of Christ. And one day, we'll have that sacred, sanctimonious moment when we are united with him forever in a place where there is No more sin and pain and sorrow and darkness. But until then, keep the joy in your heart knowing that Emmanuel, God with us, is in you. 
You know, as we think about that, Jesus did not say, keep my commandments and show me that you love me. Instead, he said, if you love me and you have that relationship, you'll want to keep my commands. You'll have that heart. There's a lot of difference. There's a lot of difference. They were saying, look, we want to do all these things to show God that we love him. And Jesus says, no, if you love me, you can have a relationship with me and come follow me. Jesus opens with an illustration about a wedding. But then it's interesting because Jesus gives us two parables that follow Notice, as we think about it, we first prioritize our relationship with Jesus. Secondly, we recognize and recognize your new life in Christ. And so Jesus tells two parables beginning in, in verse number 36. He tells them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. And then he gives them that then says that no one puts new wine into an old wineskin. So Jesus is going to give two parables that illustrate new life. The first parable is a parable about garments. And he says that no one takes a new piece of cloth that is an unshrunk, uh, un- unshrinked piece of cloth. It, it hasn't, it hasn't aged yet. It hasn't shrunk yet. And, and patch it onto an old piece because when you wash it, the one will shrink and it will tear away from the old garment. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to patch up the Old Testament law. I came to give you something new. And in Isaiah 61.10, it tells us that he gives us garments of salvation. When I was uh, probably about the fourth grade, we, there were six of us kids in nine years. So when I was in fourth grade, I had a sister in seventh grade, a sister in eighth grade, a sister in ninth grade a brother in second grade, and a brother in kindergarten. That year, my mom, uh, when my brother was going to kindergarten, went back to college so that she could get her teaching degree. So there's six of us from ninth grade through kindergarten, and then my mom is in college at the same time. My dad, uh, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Obviously, we kept her plenty busy. Uh, and, uh, and then, again, when my youngest uh, brother Dale at the time, this was before my brother Chris was born, uh, but at the beginning of the school year, I would get new jeans. And we were never poor, but money was always tight. And I remember being on the playground one, one uh, day in the fourth grade, and I went down to get a ball, and I skinned my pant leg, and I put a hole in my jeans. And I knew I wasn't going to get a new pair of jeans. I knew exactly what was going to happen. I was going to bring those dudes home. This was before holy jeans were a thing, you know. Now, I mean, you know, rip them up, tear them up, poke holes in them, make them look all fringed, and people pay high dollar for that. This was a little before that. I knew my mom was going to put a patch on it, and I knew it wasn't going to exactly match. And it, it really made me sad. Because I knew that those jeans would never look the same. They would never patch the same. And what Jesus is saying here is, look, I'm not trying, I'm not coming to, to put a patch on the law. 
so that you can, you can try to achieve better and greater obedience. But instead, I want to give you new garments. I want to give you salvation as a free gift. Then he turns that around again and uses another parable. And he talks about wineskins. Now, wineskins were often made from uh, goats. And, and a lot of times they were made from the innards of animals. Uh, and the new wineskins would have some flexibility to them and they would stretch. And you would have to put new wine into new wineskins because of the fermentation process and the, the letting off of, of gas during that fermentation process that that would have to be able to expand a little bit in the process. And so Jesus says, I'm not going to put new wine into an old wineskin because what will happen is, is that old wine skin has gotten brittle. And once that thing, uh, once that new wine begins to ferment and, and, and begin to expand and let off those gases, that, that thing is brittle and it's going to bust and it's going to ruin the wine skin and it's going to ruin the wine. So he says, look, I'm not coming to, to, uh, try again to, to pour something new into the old. Instead, I'm about a whole new creation process. I'm about starting everything fresh and providing salvation through myself alone so that he comes to bring new life. He comes to give us new garments and he comes to offer new life, not under the control of obey do this, do that. God's not an ogre up in heaven waiting for us to to misbehave so he can slap us. The picture is, is that Jesus has come so that we can have a new relationship with him. And within this relationship, we can be dressed in new garments and he can pour salvation into us that will stretch us and move us and transform us in ways that we had never experienced before. That's why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians five seventeen, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things are passed away. No more brittle old wineskins. I'm giving you a new life and I'm pouring salvation into your life. Now again, why is this important with who's your one? Because so many people believe that it's about my good outweighing my bad. It's about following rules. I have to go to church. I have to do this. I have to do that. And we're coming back and saying, no, it's about a personal relationship with Jesus. And it's about new life in him. He's not patching up so we can follow old rules. Instead, he's providing a relationship that we can walk in newness of life. That's what Jesus is driving home. But then right at the end of this chapter, he throws a proverb in there, which is quite interesting. Notice what he says in verse number 39. And no one after drinking old wine wants new because he says the old is better. The proverb Jesus basically says is there are some who don't want to have anything to do with what's new. They like the old law. They like to follow the external rules. They like to focus on their own goodness and their own piety. And they would rather have the old than experience the new. 
And they are the, exactly the ones who would say, who is this guy who can forgive? Who is this guy that hangs tax, around tax collectors and sinners? Who is this guy that offers new life? That's the picture. Jesus didn't come to patch up the law and he didn't come to pour something new into something old. Jesus came to provide new life for us. Ultimately, what would happen is the great high priest, Jesus himself, would offer a perfect sacrifice himself. And through that, Jesus would end the sacrificial system because it tells us in Hebrews that he is the high priest then sat down. That one sacrifice was sufficient to forgive our sins, to bring us into a relationship with him, and to make us a new creation. That's what we have. It's not about just being good. Some of you may be here today and you think, man, I'm really trying to be good, and I'm trying to do good. And I will tell you, you'll never be good enough. You'll never do enough. You'll never earn heaven on your own. That's why Jesus came. And today he offers a relationship. And today he offers a new life. But then we see, as we go into chapter 6, the Pharisees go back at it again. Because on the Sabbath day in chapter 6, verse number 1, it tells us that as his disciples were going on the Sabbath, that they took some kernels of, of wheat and they uh, pulled some, some uh, grains of wheat and they rubbed the kernels between their hand and they ate them. And the Pharisees then accuse them and say, what are you doing like this on the Sabbath? And Jesus would refer back to David eating the showbread. Again, confronting their man-made rules, having to keep the law on the Sabbath. When we were in Israel, and some of you have been there, do you realize that for a Jew, and, and, and out of, I, I say this out of sincerity and not out of ridicule to them at all, but they are so intent on keeping the law that they will not push a button on an elevator to go to their floor because they consider that work and they make the machine work. So there are what they call Shabbat elevators. And what these elevators do is you can get in and it'll go up one floor at a time and then it'll come down one floor at a time. And if you get on it, you don't have to push any buttons. And if you're on the fourth floor, eventually... You'll end up on the fourth floor, and if you get on the sixth floor, eventually it'll bring you down to the ground floor because they don't want to push a button. When my boys were in Israel a few years ago, Luke and Joel, uh, they were sharing a meal. They had gone with Missouri Baptist University, and they were sharing a meal with a family on the Sabbath, Shabbat, and somehow a breaker tripped. They could not fix the breaker. They had to get one of the Gentiles to do that. Because they, they would have had to remain in the dark through that evening and through the rest of the day. Their intent on the law. And then we find beginning in Luke chapter 6, notice, notice with me in Luke chapter 6 and pick up in, in verse number uh, 6. It says, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. He's on the Sabbath. It's on the Sabbath. He's in a synagogue. And it says, a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. 
The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could find a charge against him. Many people believe that they set this guy up. They said, hey, we want you to stand. We know you have a shriveled hand. We want you to stand right here because we know Jesus is going to be here. And when Jesus gets here, we want to see what he's going to do. Many, many commentators believe that this is an absolute setup. But he knew their thoughts and told the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand here. So he got up and stood there. And Jesus said, I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he told them, stretch out your hand. And he did, and his hand was restored. They, however, were filled with rage and started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. You know what we find here? is that despite the expectations of those who would say, Jesus should never act like this on the Sabbath day, Jesus says, it is okay to do good. I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? Which brings us to that third thought, that you need to recognize the goodness of Jesus. Recognize and realize the goodness of Jesus. When we think about our life, When we think about our faith, the Lord calls us to a personal relationship. And he calls us to personal transformation, a new garment, new wine into new wineskin. And he calls us to experience his goodness. Psalm 119 verse 68 says that the Lord is good and does good. That goodness is part of his character, that the Lord is good. He is a stronghold to those who trust in him. The Lord is good. And so it's not about us following rules per se. It's about us walking in a loving relationship and walking with a transformed life and walking with confidence because we know we have a good Savior. Notice the pictures of Jesus that we see in Luke 5 and beginning of Luke 6. We see Jesus as a leader who in Luke 5, 1 through 11, calls people, come and follow me. We see Jesus as the physician who would take those who were spiritually sick and say, friend, your sins are forgiven, and would mingle with tax collectors and sinners and say, look, it's not the righteous, those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are spiritually sick, Jesus is the physician. We find that Jesus is the bridegroom, that he longs for a relationship with us. We find that Jesus is the one who transforms our life with a new garment and new wine into new wineskin. And Jesus is the bestower of goodness. As you go, And as you share with your one, I pray that as you articulate the truth of what you have in Jesus, that you would know it's about a relationship and about transformation and about walking in his goodness. Let's not only be attractive with our words, but let's be attractive with our life as we walk with a good and loving and gracious God.
Jesus. He's all that we need. And when we love him, yeah, we follow him. We're not trying to do rules to please him. But because we love him, we walk with him. And that's what we're calling people to do. Not follow rules, but to follow him. With that, let's pray together. Today, I want to ask you, do you have a relationship with Jesus? I'm not talking about are you a member of a church. I'm saying Jesus as the bridegroom is here to experience a relationship with you. Let me ask you today, has your life been transformed by the power of Jesus? Has he given you the garment of salvation and changed your life from the inside out? May I ask you today, are you walking in the goodness of Jesus? Do you know him? Do you love him? Acts 10.38 says Jesus went about doing good and he wants to do good today for any of you who don't know that you know him. He wants to do good for some of you today who have gotten off track. Romans 2.4 tells us it's his goodness that leads us to repentance. And he's calling you today. Come home. Get your heart right. You're not going to find joy and peace out there. Come home. The Lord is good. Father, I pray that during these next moments of invitation, Lord, that we would know, and without a shadow of a doubt, I pray for your people to know that they're in relationship, that they've been transformed, and that they've experienced your goodness. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. And as you stand this morning, I want to ask you, Do you know you're in a relationship with him? Has he transformed your life? Have you experienced his goodness personally? If not today, the Lord's calling. And he's given you an opportunity. You you may have the Lord and have had the Lord around you all of your life. Been in church, been in a Christian home. But you never personally have experienced Jesus. Today he's calling you out of his goodness. And saying, come on. Follow me.